Welcome to this week's Dividend Cafe podcast. We are excited to have broken into September and I'm recording this here just before leaving for my wedding anniversary weekend with my wife uh, celebrating 15 years. But a lot going on in the market so I want to kind of get into it. Amazing things happening with the dollar, emerging markets, oil. So uh, let's uh, let's get right into it. The, the first comment we have this week deals with this incredibly low market volatility we've been seeing lately. I suppose we should never complain about that, which most people are begging for. But for those who have hated the high volatility of early 2016, your wish has certainly been granted. The past 40 days have been the least volatile period. Uh, the most tight range of stock movement in a hundred years, which is really just kind of a a remarkable thing to say, given how high the vol had been earlier in the year. Will this reverse? Is volatility likely to return to a heightened form? Of course it is. But sadly, there's not a way to know when that will happen. The Morgans who cried wolf. Wall Street behemoths J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley, where many of you know I worked for many years as a managing director and senior portfolio manager at the firm, they each went to great lengths to publicize the financial pandemonium that would result from an affirmative Brexit vote, including both threatening to move thousands of jobs out of London, forecasting an immediate and severe UK recession should the British people vote for sovereignty and independence. Well, the British people did just that, and the two Morgans didn't. In fact, this week, they magically forecasted positive GDP growth in the UK now, not recession. My fear is that the next time these large firms forecast something legitimately dire, they may have a hard time getting an audience. I would do anything for growth, but I won't do that. Um, With apologies to Meatloaf, it's fascinating to me that we have leaders at each major central bank and each major political ruling class who've said they'll do whatever it takes to spur growth from negative interest rates to massive quantitative easing to unprecedented government spending, eccentric infrastructure stimulus, dramatic currency weakening. Yet, the one thing that never seems to enter the conversation is the good old-fashioned, tried-and-true Reagan and Thatcher method of productivity provocation through tax cuts and deregulation. We wrote a special article at DividendCafe.com this week on the very subject you might be interested in looking at. Back with a vengeance. What do you get when the dollar sells off across most global currencies? Bond yields of every developed nation at 1.5% or lower. And China going a few weeks with actual pretty good news and certainly no disruption you get a face-ripping rally in emerging markets that's been something to behold. Left for dead in Q1, emerging markets equities are up about 25 to 30% from their low point, and even emerging markets bonds are up approximately 14% from their low point. This has or will have profound effects on commodity prices as well. The very good news is that there were and are excellent growth investments that were being thrown out with the bathwater in this space. The bad news is that we suspect the weak dollar as a reason to buy emerging market stocks and superior yields as a reason to buy emerging market bonds 
does not necessarily take into account or properly digest geopolitical risk and expected volatility, we always fear excessive moves in either direction. Goldilocks returns. The not too, hold, not too hot, not too cold camp got a boost last week with a jobs report from August of only 150,000 jobs created, 180,000 had been expected, and 270,000 had been the number last month. What this Goldilocks camp means is that those who believe we're warm enough to avoid recession but cold enough to avoid Fed tightening. It's sort of silly to think that this will stay in perpetuity. Um, I believe people are right that we're not in recession right now, and I believe they're right that we are unlikely to act in September. But um, let's, let's uh, just wait and see how these jobs numbers play out over the months ahead. There's a lot of indicators besides jobs that feed into economic health. A 100% connection 50% of the time. It's not our belief that MLP values, MLPs again are the oil and gas pipeline companies that transport natural gas and crude oil, are correlated with oil prices. It never has been our belief that they are. MLP prices can react to a sustained drop in oil prices if markets believe that projects will dry up and dramatically reduce volumes. Remember, pipelines are paid by the volume of the liquids going through them, not the price of the liquids. Indeed, that's what happened a year ago. Market, and by the way, September of last year was the real culmination of this disaster. Market fears of a worst case scenario in prices pushing MLP prices down. But the reality is this, the historical correlation especially through greater time, is not high. There are plenty of periods where lower prices help, not hurt volumes, and this year is the rule, last year the exception. What I mean, what I mean by that is this. Oil price volatility most of this year has been very high. MLP volatility has not been. That, my friends, is the definition of not having a high correlation. Look away, there's nothing to see here. Does it make your eyes glaze over when you hear things like Fed balance sheet and quantitative easing? You're not alone, but there's a graphic representation at DividendCafe.com this week, um, which is just a profound policy paradigm we're experiencing in world central banks. It shows you the chart of how much Federal Reserve and other central bank balance sheets have grown over the last eight and over the last 15 years. Since you obviously can't see the chart right now, let me just tell you, all the central banks in the world in the year 2000 had about $3 trillion of assets on their balance sheets. It went to about $6 trillion by the time of the financial crisis. It's at $18 trillion now. Within our own U.S. central bank, QE1 and then QE2 and then QE3 managed to add about $4 trillion of that. So what this means is central banks own assets that have grown their balance sheet that they didn't previously own. They were expanding money supply, or at least they were expanding bank reserves, which is actually more accurate. They can sell those assets, which would be a huge tightening, higher rates, uh, lower liquidity in the marketplace, or they can let them sit, which kind of does nothing. But the point is that we have seen a gargantuan increase of central bank intervention since the financial crisis both here in the United States and all over the world. We're very skeptical of those claiming that they know how this will play out. They don't, because we've never seen it, never been here before. 
Real quickly, as we get ready to wrap up, Chinese imports came in very strong in the month of August, up for the first time in two years, which is frankly a really big surprise. Does it mean that China is successfully converting to a domestic demand economy? It's way too early to tell. We suspect it's a data anomaly, but we don't want to rule anything out. Um, ultimately, if indeed there is growing imports taking place in China, that would be extremely interesting as it pertains to commodity prices and some sort of catalyst for global growth that's been lacking for two years. I'm going to close with what we're calling the low bar of genius. My friends at Invesco sent a few things this week that I read and digested. It kind of inspired me to share. There's nothing more annoying to me than the status that perma bears receive in the media and general society when they average something around a 2% accuracy rating in their forecast. In other words, they're wrong all the time. have caused more people to miss out on the great returns and discounting of future cash flows of the world's best companies than I could even count. I don't care that they're wrong most of the time. I don't care that some people who usually share a pessimistic pathology follow their worldview. What I'm mystified by is that those who sound most negative are always perceived to be the most cerebral and intelligent. There are a lot of reasons for this. Optimism may have history on its side, but a cynic might say it has something to sell too. Realistic purveyors of markets know that the various truths, truths we share with our clients each and every week that sentiment gets overdone both ways, that business cycles matter, that valuations matter, and that through time markets correct and the rationality of capital resumes its upward march. The broken clock perma bears can sound smart at the cocktail party all they want, but the real smarts has been in monetizing the returns of a free market for decades. I'll close out this week with a heartfelt acknowledgement to my wife, Jolene, who I'm celebrating 15 years of marriage with. Um, we're looking forward to getting away a little bit, and I can just tell you that Jolene is absolutely at the heart of what we're doing with the Bonson Group through her support of me and my work, uh, which frankly exceeds anything any wife should ever have to put up with. So I'll leave it there. Happy anniversary to Joe, and have a great weekend to all of you.